I should like to call your attention this evening to the well-known words that are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the third chapter and the sixteenth verse. The sixteenth verse in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We looked at this great statement last Sunday evening, and as we did so, I indicated that while this is possibly the most familiar and well-known verse in the whole Bible, that it is nevertheless true to say that there is no verse, perhaps, which is so frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted as this particular verse. Nothing is therefore more fatal with this verse than just to repeat it generally, as if it were some kind of incantation. It's a verse that must be examined and observed carefully, Because, as I indicated to you in passing, it is a verse that is literally packed with very uh, fundamental and vital Christian doctrine. The very fact that it is connected with the previous verses uh, should uh, open our eyes to that at once. But it is extraordinary how people almost invariably isolate this verse. The Bible in front of me, for instance, uh, starts a new paragraph here which is obviously quite nonsensical. You shouldn't start a new paragraph when the first verse in the statement is the word for. It's a continuation of what he has been saying, not only in verses 14 and 15, but indeed all the way from verse 11. And thus, uh, as we come back to it, I trust that we shall bear these preliminary considerations in our minds. Now, it is not my intention this evening or at this present time to deal with the great doctrines that are contained here one by one. We've already been looking at several of them as we have been working our way through this great chapter. I'm rather anxious, once more, to look at what is, after all, the central theme of this verse, and that is the love of God as it is displayed in the salvation of men. That is the thing that our Lord was anxious that Nicodemus should grasp above everything else. Now, again, here is a point which we mustn't lose sight of. These words were spoken to that great man Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler, a teacher of the Jews. And we bear that in mind because there are certain aspects of the statement as I hope to show you, that we can't fully grasp unless we realize that they were spoken in particular to this learned and religious Jew. Very well then, I say, we must bear all that in mind as we approach it once more. Our Lord was anxious that Nicodemus, who had got such an entirely wrong notion as to the Messiah who was to come, should have the true idea and that therefore he should realize who he was speaking to, and what was the purpose of the coming of the Son of God into this world of time. Now then, the great theme is the love of God, as manifested in his Son and in the salvation that the Son has made possible. Now, last Sunday evening, we spent our time in looking at what we may call the degree of the love. God so loved. Now, that's the word, that's the expressive word, this word, so. And it's the content of that little word, so, that we are still interested in. Last week, it was the degree of God's love. He so loved the world. And we looked at the meaning of that phrase. What is the world? Well, it is man in sin. Man fallen away from God. 
Men living a life outside God and all the glorious possibilities that God originally placed in men when he created him. But God loved that. Man in that condition. The world. And not only that, we saw that he so loved it that he sent his only begotten son into such a world. And we looked at something of what that must have meant both to the son and to the father. And then we ended on this note and there is nothing which is so moving and so wonderful in the whole of scripture as this. God so loved the world that he gave. He delivered him up for us all. He delivered him up to all the endurance and the suffering and the agony that you and I so richly merit because of our sin and disobedience. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It is by his stripes that we are healed. He received the stripes. He suffered under them. God gave him over to that. And there you see something of the degree of God's love. But now this evening, I want to consider the manner of God's love. Not the degree so much this evening as the manner of it. And it's all still in this little word, so. And it is, of course, defined by our Lord himself in certain words that are actually used by him in this particular verse. Now, I regard this as a great privilege to hold before you the manner of God's love. And I'm holding it before you this evening for two very special reasons. I pray that God may look upon us and have mercy upon us altogether and give me power to put this before you in a way that it shall be plain and clear to all who are listening to my voice at this moment. Why, why do I feel this in an unusual manner? Well, let me put it to you like this. We all of us are in a life in which we never know quite what's going to happen next. And nothing is so important as we listen to the gospel as that we should listen to it with that in our minds. You know, if all of us only realize the truth about life in this world, we should listen to this gospel in a very different manner. The trouble with us all is, we're all guilty of it, that we tend to act on the assumption that we are here forever. And that we can afford to listen to these things in a detached manner. If only we saw ourselves as strangers and pilgrims and sojourners and journeymen, which is what we are. Only during this past week, I suddenly heard uh, that a man whom I've known for some 30 odd years, between 30 and 35 years, suddenly while speaking in a meeting such as this, collapsed and died. Oh, you say, but we're all familiar with that sort of thing. Yes, I know we are so familiar with it that we forget it. But you see, my friends, we are all in that kind of situation. One disadvantage about a church like this is, and indeed it's a disadvantage about life in London altogether, that uh, things like that are not brought home to us as they are in smaller communities. If you happen to be living in a village and a man suddenly dies, well, you can't help thinking about it. Everybody talks about it. It's the one great topic of conversation uh, for a week and longer. It's there, it's held before you. But here in London so many things happen. We tend to forget these things. It's a dangerous thing to live in a great city. So I mention a fact like that to you in order that we all may remember that though we live in this great city of London, we are just human beings like everybody else. And that it's true of all of us to say, here today and gone tomorrow. The gospel addresses us 
in that way as men and women who are here and are listening and have the opportunity and it may be the last and every man who preaches should preach in that way as a dying man to dying men. I say that as we listen to these gracious words uttered by the Son of God that we may listen to them in that way. And my second reason for calling your attention thus to them solemnly is this. That again, very recently, I've had abundant evidence that so many people stumble with respect to the Christian life just at this very point. Now, it's my privilege on Friday nights here in this church to be working through this epistle to the Romans, as you've been hearing. And uh, recently, in doing so, we have come to the Apostles' great and mighty and moving statement of the doctrine of justification by faith only. And we've been going through it and trying to expound it. And uh, to me it has been wonderful how God has used a service like that, which uh, one would have thought was primarily a teaching service, as a means and an instrument of conversion and of bringing at least three people out of darkness into light converting them, bringing them to a knowledge of the truth. Every time the gospel is presented, it's an evangelistic service. We've gone sadly astray, my friends, to think that only certain services in the church are evangelistic. Whenever this truth is expounded and preached, it's evangel. And we expect conversions in every meeting. These divisions are not scriptural. And God has corrected our notions in that way by using such a service in bringing people to a knowledge of himself. Yes, and through this very point with which we are dealing this evening, and others have spoken to me, how easy it is for us to miss this central point, this preliminary point of the gospel. Very well then, I say, I want to try and put it to you tonight in as practical and as simple and as direct a manner as is possible. How does God manifest his love to us? Well, the first thing I want to call attention to tonight is this. He does so in what he gives to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what the gospel is about. You see, Nicodemus had never realized that. He thought that it was about uh, miracles and about certain aspects of teaching and so on. It isn't. The gospel includes all that, of course. It's got a most amazing ethic. It preaches the highest morality that has ever been held before men. It's got its social application, its industrial application, its endless applications. Yes, but my dear friend, if you spend your time with the applications and miss this, what a tragedy it is. The great object and purpose is to give men everlasting or eternal life. Now, what is this? Had you realized that the gospel is offering you everlasting life? That the Son of God came into the world in order to give you that? Well, what is it? Well, as our Lord makes quite plain and clear here and in the previous verses, it is the opposite to perishing. You should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now then, what does he mean by this? What is perishing? Well, it's defined elsewhere in the scriptures in this way. It is to be dead in trespasses and in sins. And a man who is dead and in trespasses and sins is perishing. And that is the condition of all men by nature. That is how we are born into this world, perishing. What does it mean? Well, it means this. It means that we are outside the life of God. And we are living a life which is entirely confined to the human and to the temporal level and sphere. It means that instead of belonging to God, we belong to this world. And we all know perfectly well what that means. 
It means that our ideas are bounded by life in this world, bounded by the ideas and the thoughts and the capacities of men. And that we can never go outside that and never get beyond that. That's what to be perishing means. Life, you see, is in God. God alone hath immortality. God alone hath life. And apart from God, there is no life. That is why the Apostle Paul calls it dead in trespasses and in sins. And that is man's state, I say, by nature. And how evident it is that that is the condition of so many in this world this evening. They're not alive to spiritual things at all. They don't seem to realize that they've got a soul within them. Something that is bigger than this world altogether. Something that will go on when their body is dead and buried in a grave. Something that is imperishable. Something immaterial. They, they never stop to think about that. They're not interested in it. Why? Well, because they're dead. They're perishing. They're spiritually dead. And the only life they know, you see, is the life that belongs to the body. That's their realm. That's their sphere. And, of course, they're always talking about it and getting excited about it, spending their money and their time on it. I needn't waste your time in telling you in detail what I mean, we're all perfectly familiar with it. You've simply got to read a newspaper or to listen to the wireless. Uh, no, I, I'm not criticizing these things as such, but all I am saying is this. Isn't it rather odd, isn't there something at any rate strange about this? That men are prepared to give such time and money and uh, keenness and enthusiasm uh, to things that belong only to the animal and the bodily and physical part of men and none at all to the highest part of men. Well, that's to be perishing. Not to be alive to and alert to the highest and the noblest and the most wonderful things, but to get so excited about the other. Surely it's a sign of death. It's a sign that we're in a perishing condition. And I think you'll agree that that is the state of our last, the majority of people in this country without going any further today. Food, drink, clothing, games, sports, excitement. Look at them by the thousands at their various football matches and the distances they'll travel, the way they'll talk about it before and afterwards and spend money and the excitement about it. All right, you say there's nothing wrong in a game of football. I quite agree. That isn't what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the people who play football. I'm talking the people who get excited about it and just watching it and things of that sort. It's a very good thing to exercise your body. But I'm talking about the whole personality living for that. Or living for any one of these things that are purely on the animal and the physical level and plane. And uh, having no interest at all, indeed despising, this other kind of life in which one reminds oneself of this something within that links one to God and enjoys him and his life. But there it is, you see, that's perishing. Not alive at all to the things of God, but living only and entirely bound and circumscribed by these things that belong not only to the body, but to time and to this world. And what makes it more tragic is this, that even as they're doing so, they're literally and physically dying. Every day we live, we get older. Every day we live, we are losing something in our faculties. Now, this isn't to be morbid. This is to face facts. I believe in facing facts. The gospel is not sob stuff. The sob stuff is the talk that doesn't face the facts and tells you leave it alone and let's go and have a good time. That's sob stuff because it isn't honest. It isn't facing facts. 
I believe in facing facts, and I therefore know that every one of us is getting older every single day, and you can, it can happen to you without your knowing it, you see. And so a man who appears to be full of health and vigor and strength can suddenly drop dead. He's never heard of that pain before. His first attack killed him. Why? Well, there was a settled process going on in his arteries. He didn't know, nobody knew, but it was there. And he's dying and he didn't know it. And suddenly everybody knows that he's dead. Perishing. And what is so terrifying, of course, and so awful is the message of the scripture that anybody who dies in that state and condition goes on like that through all eternity. I don't believe that hell is a place, says someone. All right, my friend, I'm not asking you to believe that at the moment. All I'm asking you to say is this. Would you like to spend your eternity as you are now, and even worse, perishing? No hope, no prospect, nothing to relieve it at all. That is the condition of mankind. Now the love of God is seen in this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's this? It's the exact opposite of all that I've been describing to you. And this is the most amazing thing in the world tonight. What is it then? Well, it's this. Here the Apostle Paul puts it in these words. Reckon yourselves, therefore, he says to every Christian, Reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. That's it. That's what is meant by eternal life. That one comes out of that condition of perishing, and one begins to live in a real sense and in a spiritual sense. Life always in the Bible means a participation in the life of God, and that is Christianity. I've often quoted this from this pulpit before. A great Scotsman living some nearly 300 years ago, he wrote a book with this title. His name was Henry Scougal. The Life of God in the Souls of Men. That's eternal life. That's Christianity. That is Christianity. Christianity, you see, is not just morality. It isn't much just goodness. It isn't just doing certain things and not doing others. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. The real heart and core and center of Christianity is the life of God in a man's soul, eternal life. Very well then, you see, we must define this term, eternal or everlasting life, in, in this twofold way. It first of all means a quality of life. It's a particular quality of life. It means, in other words, that we are made spiritually alive. It means that whereas a man had always been living in the way that I've been depicting, suddenly he awakens to the fact that dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. He's aware of the fact that there's something in him that is bigger than all this physical, all this material and earthly. There is this immaterial, invisible something that is a part of him and it's the greatest part of him. He be begins to awaken to that. And he says, I've never considered it. I've never thought about it. I've done nothing about it. I've been neglecting the most priceless thing of all. But now he's made alive, spiritually alert. He awakens. And so he begins to think about God. You see, the way to measure life or any view of life is just this. How does one spend it? Uh, what, uh, what is it one does with one's activities? Now, I put it to you as a simple question, a reasonable question. Which is the greater when you come to assess and to measure to be thinking upon the mere use of the body in various ways. Or to be thinking about God. 
the Lord God Almighty, the everlasting and the eternal, and my relationship to him, thinking of men in the context of God and of eternity and of all that is glorious and wonderful, that's the thing that happens to the man who is given eternal or everlasting life. He becomes spiritually awake. And he now begins to think along this line. You see, our Lord himself on one occasion, it's in the 17th chapter of this gospel, according to St. John, the third verse, said this. He said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, that's the thing that is given to us by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing God. Knowing God's love to us. Knowing God's care for us. His solicitude with respect to us. So that you see, when you find yourself suddenly stricken by an illness and no longer able to follow your usual profession or business or whatever it was, and no longer able to go after your excitements and your interests and your pleasure, suddenly all that is stopped and you're lying helpless and you're back in bed and left to yourself and you don't know what to do with yourself. Ah, oh, before you were wretched and miserable and disconsolate, but now you are not alone. You know that God is with you. You know that God is with you. And he manifests himself to you. And indeed you may find yourself even thanking God for an illness. You may say with the psalmist of old, It was good for me that I have been afflicted. Before, because before I was afflicted I went astray. But now he's come back and he's enjoying a life of communion with God. And he knows that God will never leave him nor forsake him. And other things that follow are these. He begins to experience a peace and a joy that he'd never known before. Isn't it difficult to find peace in this world? The world with its rush and its bustle and its noise and its clatter. Oh, where can one find peace and rest and quiet? Here it is as a part of everlasting life. And joy. Joy I give unto you, said the Lord Jesus Christ. My joy give I unto you. Indeed, I can sum it up, therefore, by putting it like this. To have eternal life means that we become the possessors of exactly the same life as the Son of God himself had when he was in this world. Read these four Gospels for yourself. Look at his life. Everybody admires that life. Had you realized, my friend, that that very type of life, that quality, that kind of life, is offered to you by Christ himself? You and I can share his life. We can have the life of Christ within us. And we can go through this world exactly as he went through it. Living above it, living on a higher plane and on a higher level. Knowing a peace that nothing could disturb. Knowing a joy that even the cross could not rob him of. That's the quality of life. But eternal life is not only a quality of life, it's also got the element of quantity in it. And you notice that there is a difference here. In the 15th verse I read that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here it is translated that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I want to emphasize that. The life that is given to the Christian in this world is a life without end. It not only lasts in time, it lasts throughout eternity. Indeed, what we are given in this life is merely the first fruits. It's merely the foretaste. You know the farmers in ancient times, when the crop had become ripened, they used to go and reap just a little. 
That was called the first fruits. The first pickings, if you like, from the apple tree. The first apple that has become, you take just that one and you eat it and you say, isn't it marvelous? And see the crop that's coming. The first fruits, the foretaste. That's all we are given here. It's marvelous, it's wonderful. But after death we go on and receive it in all its fullness and in all its glory. That is everlasting life. God puts his life into our souls here. It lasts through life. It lasts through death. And it goes on lasting throughout eternity itself. And that is the prospect. As our Lord puts it here. For every one that believeth on his name. That is the gift. Oh, isn't this an amazing love? The love of God to men is as great as this. This is its mode. This is its method. That it comes to rebels and sinners who are dead and perishing and gives them life. God's life. And you realize that you might begin to enjoy the life of God in your soul in this present world? That's the very message of the gospel. But come, let me note the second thing. Notice the way in which God gives it. How does God give this life? Now here is a thing that must have astounded Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you see, as a Jew and as a Pharisee, believed that God rewarded men for the good life they lived and for their prayers and for all their religion and so on. They say, if I do this much, then God will give me the reward. The Apostle Paul once believed that doctrine as he tells us in writing to the Philippians. He was proud of his own life, his own godliness and religion and all his efforts. And he believed God would reward him that he could even put in his bill as it were and ask for the reward. That's the natural man's view if he believes in God at all. But do you notice what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus? God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now this is the thing I'm anxious to make so plain and clear. You receive this gift of eternal life. You receive salvation entirely and only and utterly as a gift from God. It is the result only of believing on him, of faith in him. You do nothing at all for it. It isn't the result of your good works. It isn't the result of your good life. It isn't the result of your efforts, your striving, or any of your achievements. That has got nothing to do with it. It is entirely the result of believing in the name of the Son of God. It is here, I say, that men will persist in going astray. There is no greater fallacy than to think that you can make yourself a Christian. No man has ever made himself a Christian. No man ever will make himself a Christian. Indeed, I go so far as to say this. The man who thinks that he has made himself a Christian is proving and asserting that he is not a Christian. For it is an impossibility. And there is nothing that so prevents men from becoming Christians as their own efforts to make themselves Christian. It simply cannot be done. Now the history of the church is strewn with evidence about this. Wasn't that the whole trouble with Martin Luther before his conversion? He was trying to make himself a Christian. And he realized it was a tremendous task. He became a monk. He turned his back upon the world and upon prospects in a profession. And he went into a cell. And there he is fasting and sweating and praying and doing good. What's he trying to do? Trying to make himself a Christian. Trying to work up a righteousness that will satisfy God. And God looking on him will say, Well done, Martin Luther. You've done so well. I give you the gift of eternal life as a reward. And then his eyes were suddenly opened. And he saw that it was tragically wrong. 
And he turned right about and he saw that that was the way to hell and that there was only one way to God and to heaven and that was this way of faith. The just shall live by faith. What's it mean? Well, let me put it simply like this. What obtains this gift of eternal life is that a man believes in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that so whosoever believeth in him should not perish. What's it mean? It means this. Our Lord has already been expounding it to Nicodemus. It means that you must believe in his person. It means that you accept this scriptural testimony and evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was none other than the eternal Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. It just means that you believe this record, that at that given point in time, which happened when you turn from B.C. to A.D., that the Son of God came out of heaven and was born of the virgin's womb. You believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You believe this statement, that that person who appeared to be just a man and who worked as a carpenter in Nazareth for all those silent years, was none other than the everlasting word through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that is made. The person of the Son of God, you believe on him. Yes, but not only his person, but his work. You believe that he came into this world in order to save men from perishing. That he didn't come into the world just to give us a moral teaching, just to give us an example and a fillip to our efforts and endeavors. No, no. You believe him when he says the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You believe them. Now believing on him means that, and you must put that into the content. In other words, it means this. If you say truly that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're saying can be put in these terms. I see that I am a sinner. I see that I'm perishing. I see that I'm outside the light, life of God. I see that all my goodness about which I've boasted so much is but as filthy rags, or what the Apostle Paul calls dung, refuse, manure, foul. I see that I can never put myself right. And I see and believe that the Son of God came from heaven to earth in order to save me. I believe that he took my sins upon himself and bore their punishment that he has done this for me that none other could do, but that he has done it. Now that is what believing in him means, but I want to emphasize the believing aspect. What does that mean? Well, obviously it must mean in the first instance recognition of the truth. Did you notice that interesting statement that was made about that woman Lydia, a seller of purple from Thyatira who lived in the city of Philippi? The Apostle Paul and his companions went and sat down amongst those women in the prayer meeting and the Apostle began to speak unto them the word of the Lord. And do you remember what happened? Whose heart we are told the Lord opened that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. Attended unto them. She did that for the first time in her life, you see. Paid attention to. Now then, here is the first thing always in belief. You may have had an open Bible in your possession all your life. It was in your home. You may have read it when you were a child. You've heard it read in chapel or in church, wherever you go. Ah, oh, you say, I've always been familiar with that, but that isn't what I'm asking. Have you attended unto it? Have you said this word is speaking to me? 
When I read what our Lord said to Nicodemus, I'm reading what he says to me. This isn't simply about people who lived 2,000 years ago. It's about people still. It's about men always. This word is speaking to me. How can it be that I've lived all these years and I've never attended unto it? Ah, oh, I've said I know that, but I've never paid attention. I've never concentrated. I've never said, what does this mean? What's it saying? Attended unto it. Have you attended unto this word? You can't believe it without attending unto it. You can't take it for granted. You've got to pay attention. The next step is accepting it. Accepting it with your mind. But you know, believing goes a step further than that. It means that you begin to trust it. That you have confidence in him and in what he's done for you. Indeed, I can define believing on the Lord Jesus Christ like this. It means resting yourself and your soul and your eternal destiny entirely in him and upon him. I can therefore test you very easily at this moment as to whether you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. This is the test. Are you still looking to yourself in any way? Are you still looking to yourself in any way? Are you still saying, ah, yes, I'm now going to decide that henceforward I'm going to do this or that? If you speak like that, you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means that you have finished with yourself and your own efforts once and forever. That you say, I see it clearly, that it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter how long I may go on doing it, I can never do enough. Therefore, I'm not going to rely on myself and my activities anymore. I am now going to rely entirely on him and what he has done for me. That is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that I've got a further test. It is something that once you see it, you do at once. You don't say, no, I'm going to. What's the point of saying, I'm going to? Why not do it now? What can you do by waiting? What, what difference is it going to make, though you may wait for 24 hours? What can you do between now and this time tomorrow night that's going to make a difference to your relationship to God? No, no. The moment a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I do it now. I don't wait for a second. I want nothing more. Nothing else can make a difference. I take him now. There is an immediacy about belief. Didn't that come out in the story that I read to you about the Philippian jailer? The Philippian jailer, you know, didn't have to undergo a course of instruction before he became a Christian. He had the word preached to him and he believed him. He believed Paul and Silas and he was baptized and he rejoiced there and then. In the middle of the night it happened. This thing happens at once. If you see it, there's no point in delaying. You say at once. I can trust him now as well as tomorrow or in a thousand years' time. Nothing makes any difference. I believe now. You'll never qualify for this. You'll never be any better or any more qualified than you are now. Belief is immediate. To see the truth is to accept it and to trust it. I even go further and say, don't worry about your feelings for the moment. Don't worry about your assurance for the moment. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is accepting his testimony. Setting your seal to it that the word is true. Saying, if I don't believe it, I'm making him a liar. I don't understand, but I believe. I say when he spoke to Nicodemus, he's speaking to me. And he tells me this, I believe him. I'll trust my all, my everything to him. Oh, what a wonderful love this is. That God gives us this gift of everlasting life. His own life. In that way. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress helpless. Look to thee for grace foul. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Have you done it? Can't you see that it thus puts you at once into this position that without a second's delay, 
without waiting to rid your soul of one dark blot. You come to him just as you are and believe him when he tells you that he can wash you and make you whiter than snow. My last word is on the other word which is here and in which you see again the love of God so gloriously. The word whosoever. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't forget that this was spoken to Nicodemus who thought that Jews only were to be saved and that all Gentiles were to be condemned. No, no, says our Lord, you're quite wrong. It's for Gentiles as well as Jews. It is for all who believe, whosoever they are, from any nation or tribe or language. Doesn't matter whether you're British or African, Japanese, Chinese, South American. All this nonsense is demolished here. We're all human. We're all in sin. Whosoever believeth. But I do want to apply it like this. There's a verse which seems to me to sum it all up and I quote it to you as I close. Today thy mercy calls me to wash away my sin. Listen. However great my trespass. Have you got that? Today, today, now. Thy mercy calls me to wash away my sin. However great my trespass. There's no limit to that. Had you understood this, my friend, it doesn't matter what you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done. Ah, oh, people say to me, if you but knew the life I've lived, if you knew the sins I've committed, to which I always reply this. I say, I am not at all interested in your sins. I don't care what you've done or what you've been. We're all sinners. It's we, you see, who draw these distinctions between big sins and little sins. God doesn't. One sin is as bad as another in the sight of God. And it damns the soul as much as another. It's quite an immaterial thing to the preacher of the gospel. Whether you've committed murder or not. If you are a murderer, you've got the same chance here as anybody else. So put everything you like into that. Put murder and drunkenness, put adultery and immorality and vice, put the foulest, most fiendish, the most perverted, horrible things beyond description and imagination. Put them all in, however great my trespass. Whatever I may have been, doesn't matter. And listen. However long from mercy, I may have turned away. It doesn't matter at all. You perhaps have been reading the books of the psychologists, in which they say that if you're not converted in your adolescence stage, you never will be. Nonsense! However long from mercy, I may have turned away. Doesn't matter. I don't care how old you are. Forgive me for repeating something I've often said before. I'll let you into the secret of the essential difference between the life of a doctor and the life of a preacher and evangelist. In the case of the doctor handling people, he's very concerned about the history. Wants to know their past history, about the father and the mother, what they died of. He must have his history. He can't do anything about it. Do you know, I'm not interested in histories here. That's why I'm not interested in these testimonies, people describing the sins they'd committed and so on. It's a waste of time because everybody's a sinner. And everybody needs the same salvation. The particular sins you committed don't matter at all. And it doesn't matter what you were, whether you were an admiral or a journalist or a crossing sweeper. What's it matter? You're a soul, you're a human being. 
No one case is any more wonderful than another. Every one is a miracle. And it's God alone who could do it. Why pay attention to men, therefore? You may be an octogenarian trembling at the brink of your grave. Or you may be only eight years old. It doesn't matter. However long from mercy we may have turned away. Thy blood, O Christ, can cleanse me and make me white today. There it is then, I say. There is no hindrance, no obstacle that you can think of. The only thing that matters is do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Every objection is answered. Every obstacle is moved. If you really see this and believe what he says, you can believe it now and know that your sins are forgiven, that you are not perishing any longer, but that you have received everlasting life. Have you done so? Do so now. If you begin to say, ah, but, you haven't seen it. You haven't seen the truth. You haven't attended until you don't believe him. If you believe what he says, every but is withdrawn. Nothing matters. I just go to him as I am and acknowledge and confess my sin that I deserve hell and eternal punishment because of my folly and arrogance and sin, but that I believe that because of what he, the Son of God, has done for me, it's all cancelled. And I, from this moment, become a child of God and an heir of that eternal bliss with the Father. I do it now. And if you don't do it now, you haven't believed. If you have believed, you'll do it at once. I therefore leave it with you. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, which is life indeed. Amen. The closing hymn is Luther's great hymn, 381, 381. Out of the depths I cry to thee, Lord, hear me, I implore thee, 381. Remember the word now. It is the test of belief. If you have believed and have never done so before, confess your sin to him now, and tell him that you believe and cast yourself upon his love and mercy. Do so now. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us. Now this night, Throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall be with him in glory and sharing his eternal life without end. Amen. <laughs>